A little over a year ago, Ken Jackson referred me to a book. It was a book by, or it is a book by Tom uh, Dungy, and uh, Tony Dungy, I'm sorry, nervousness is taking over. Tony Dungy. And uh, Coach Dungy is well known by, in the football circles. I'm not a huge football fan, but I have read his book very interestingly this year uh, because it is a daily devotional book, and Ken recommended it for reading. About three weeks ago, there was a devotional on the theme of influence. And in that book, in that theme for that day, Tony Dungy said about role models, he said, you don't choose to be a role model. You just are. You don't get to choose. And he commented a little bit about there are many things that we don't make choices about in our lives. That idea struck a note with me because I think we live in a culture in which we think we can choose everything. We have all sorts of choices. Uh, from the grocery store, there's just all sorts of choices in our world. And we think we can choose things and sometimes we think we can control the future. Tony Dungy says, you're going to be a role model, either for good or not for good. It's just the way it is. There's a saying which I've heard several times, or at least a, something similar to this. It says, everything in your life is a reflection of a choice you have made. If you want a different result, make a different choice. Do you believe that? Many times I do, and in some discussions, maybe that really makes a lot of sense. But I think there are a lot of things that happen in our lives that you and I don't choose. And we do not see those events, those occurrences, those happenings in our lives as a result, direct result of our choice, because we wouldn't want to think that we were responsible for that happening that way. 1967 was a very important year for me. Oh, oh no, some of you are thinking, oh, you're not that old. Some of you are thinking, oh, you're that old. In 1967, I turned 13 years of age. In January of that year, I became a teenager, right in the middle of my seventh grade year of school. Seventh grade. I was at Whitthorn Junior High when it was located back here behind the post office, where the post office is today. And I remember the seventh grade fairly well because it was the first year of school that I enjoyed. Now, I've been to a lot of schooling, but I will honestly tell you, I don't know that there was many days, were many days in elementary school that I enjoyed. And I probably don't remember the number of spankings I got for acting like I was sick in elementary school because I didn't want to go to school when I was that age. But in seventh grade, I discovered that I liked math. And it was the first time that I began to be enjoying school. And when I finished seventh grade at Whitthorn, there seemed to be just a clearer path for me in my mind as to what I really enjoyed about school and what that might mean for me as far as being an adult later on and what I might do in my work. Later that year, in the midst of the summer break between 7th and 8th grade, I became a Christian. I had been to church, as we say, three times a week, and 
more times than that in the summer during gospel meetings and other events like Barry talked about this morning in his sermon. But that summer I'd gone to vacation Bible school as our family normally did at Riverside Congregation here in Columbia. And afterwards we went back home to our home congregation which is Berea out on Bear Creek Pike. And I responded to the gospel that next Sunday morning and then was baptized. It was a wonderful year. I found out there was something in school I liked <laughs> and began to make better grades because I was enjoying it. I became a Christian, and hey, I was a teenager. I could go to the teenager's class now at church. What a wonderful thing it was. But later that year, I had a new experience, another experience that was not so pleasant. It's September of that same year, 1967, I experienced for the first time the death of someone in my family close enough that it hurt. It was a cousin, a cousin that was several years older than me. His name was Gene Hargrove. Gene was a graduate of Spring Hill High School. He was a football player. He was a student athlete. He was recognized as a leader in his class and could have gone on to play college football. But as you may know, in 1967, the Vietnam conflict was extremely active, and Gene volunteered for service in the military. And at the age of 19, he found himself in Vietnam, facing situations that were not pleasant and were very difficult. Now, I don't want to mislead you because I... I really wasn't all that close to Gene. Gene was enough older than me, and I didn't spend enough time with him uh, to really be close to him. But I remember very well that late summer, early fall day in which we buried him. It was the first time I had experienced a military funeral with full military honors. The soldiers, the rifles, the salute, by those rifles. I remember taps being played by someone down off the side of the hill and the, the sound was echoing through the trees and in those hills. And I remember the feeling of, how could this happen? Gene is one of the good guys. He had made the right choices in his life. Excellence, integrity, and he had chosen Christ. <clears throat> and then he had chosen to serve voluntarily in the military and to go to exercise and hopefully find freedom for those that were oppressed. Gene chose to serve, but it was difficult for me to see that it was a bad choice, yet he was now dead. I saw the suffering in my mother's Face. I saw the suffering through much of my family. It was difficult to, to watch. And so at age 13, as a young Christian, I began to wonder how could God, who had saved me from my sin, let something like this happen? How could this happen in Gene's life and in my family's life? What do we expect from life or from God? Well, later in school, in about, I think it was the 11th grade, 
At that time, there was a class taught at Columbia Central High School, Old Testament taught as history. And I remember in that class, now this is some three years or so later, but I remember in that class that we had an assignment to read the book of Job. And the book of Job, as you well know, is a, a book about suffering, about the righteous suffering, about how calamity came to the life of Job, even though the Bible says that he had lived uprightly and never talked against God. Reading that book was another great challenge for me, and I think a maturing experience although I know I did not fully grasp it, nor do I fully grasp the message of the book even today. But the reading addressed the issue of why the righteous suffer and what is God's role in that suffering. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I would love for you to turn to Job chapter 1 as we look at a few verses this evening from the book of Job. Job chapter 1 and verse 1 says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which will probably read differently from yours if you're not reading from that. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity, he feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. Now this was Job's regular practice. Now, that practice, let me pause for a moment, that practice is very interesting in itself, but it's not the subject of our study tonight. The idea that a parent would offer that sort of uh, sacrifice at, for, for their children. But Job's integrity, this scripture says, was impeccable. He was impeccable. Uh, and... I'm not trying to necessarily compare Gene to, to Job, but I sort of saw him that way. Uh, so what's going to happen to Job? Well, the next scene is very curious, very interesting. Verse 6. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. 
Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Wow. There's another interesting passage that we could explore for much longer than I have here tonight. A conversation between God and Satan. A meeting of the heavenly council. Wow, what was that like? God points out Job's integrity. And then Satan says, but why does he do that? It's just always in his best interest. This is Daryl's paraphrase. It's just always in Job's best interest to serve you well because you have blessed him so richly. The New King James Version translates this phrase in in verse 9 of chapter 1. Does Job fear God for nothing? Job fear God for nothing? The question that is being asked by Satan here in this passage, in this story, is what is the motivation? Why does Job serve you, God? Is it because he loves you? Is it because he trusts you? Is it because he worships you uh, from the heart? Or is it because he has that ulterior or self-serving motive? If I serve him, God will bless me. Well, we will not have time here tonight to explore all of the book of Job, obviously. But in the rest of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, we find that Satan strikes Job first with the death of his family, except for his wife, and with the destruction of basically all his wealth. And at the end of chapter 2, after Job has also lost his health and he's scraping the sores on his body with broken clay pot pieces, his wife says, what are you doing? Why don't you curse God? Job had lost everything. Job had lost everything. Yet Job's response at the end of chapter 1 remains unfazed throughout, I think, the text. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief, verse 20. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The the Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And then at the end of chapter 2, after uh, uh, his wife's statement, Uh, curse God and die in verse 10 chapter 2 and verse 10 Job replied you talk like a foolish woman should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad so in all this Job said nothing wrong if, if you stop reading the book of Job there 
you miss out on a lot. <laughs> because that statement might leave you with the idea that Job was somehow content, that he, he was not frustrated, that he was not angry, that he was not saddened. You know, you might think that somehow he was content with his situation. But you read the rest of the book of Job and you find out Job is anything but happy. He basically curses the day he was born. He doesn't curse God, but he curses the day that he was born. He asked that it would have never happened and that he would be wiped from the earth. His three friends, uh, that I will not attempt to pronounce their names of, sit with him for a while, and they seem like good friends, and then they start accusing him. They accuse him of being guilty of sin. They accuse him of self-righteousness. They give him all sorts of advice that is unwise. And Job laments over and over again about his plight. But he never curses God. He never talks badly about God. And as the scripture says... He never lost his integrity. Well, in the last year, in addition to the book by Tony Dungy, (laughs) I have been reading this book off and on, uh, How to Read Job. I I felt a need to go back to study Job again and look at it again. And I'm a slow reader, and I'm slow many times to absorb what I'm reading. But this book is sort of a scholarly book, and I'm not a scholar, but it's written by John Walton and Tremper Longman, two Bible scholars, Old Testament scholars. And in this book, they make the statement that within the book of Job, that something they call the retribution principle is on trial. That while we read the book and we see the the trials of Job, that the book, the story is about Job, yet it's not about Job. (laughs) It's about how do we view God. It's about how do we see our relationship with God and why we're motivated to worship God and serve God and love God. The retribution principle they define uh, as this. It says the retribution principle articulates one of the basic beliefs of human beings in most cultures, at least those who believe in gods of some sort. The retribution principle is simply stated that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. The oft-dependent corollary is that if someone suffers, they are wicked, and if someone prospers, they are righteous. So these two authors that have tried to teach me something about how to read the book of Job, how to see the book of Job, and of course they they deal with the culture of the time. They deal with each of the characters and who they are and what they might represent and, and then try to bring it to application to us today. But the two authors say that it is common for people to believe that their circumstances somehow indicate whether they are in favor or out of favor with God. And it signals what, that they have done something to bring about these circumstances. 
this is where I tie back to this sentiment or this statement that I quoted earlier that our lives are an evidence of the choices we've made. I think that the suffering that Job was undergoing was not his choice. You say, well, it was the result of his choice. He chose to live righteously, so Satan wouldn't have picked on him if he hadn't lived righteously. But his choices were to live for God. These two authors go on to say, and I'll, I'll just read this one more quote from their book. Even among Christians today, it is common to encounter the belief that if someone is doing well in life, he or she must be doing something right, pleasing God and gaining his favor. Inversely, people quickly jump to the conclusion that if life takes a bad turn, there must be a reason. Whether individuals are assessing their own experiences or observing someone else's tragedies, they deduce that some wrong behavior is at the root of any misfortune. Such opinions are comforting because this understanding gives people a sense of control over their lives. I can identify with that concept. We like to have control. We like to have a sense of control. And we really want to, the choices that we make <clears throat> to be an exercise of our control. In chapter 6 of, the, of, uh, of Job, he, he responds to his friend Eliphaz and laments the state of his life. And, and I find chapter 6 very interesting because it points out how that we might get the wrong impression about Job and his state of mind if we only read the first two chapters and maybe the last chapter. In verse 2, as part of Job's response to Eliphaz, he says, If my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on the scales, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That is why I spoke impulsively. For the Almighty has struck me down with his arrows. Their poison infects my spirit. God's terrors are lined up against me. Don't I have a right to complain? Don't wild donkeys bray when they find no grass and oxen bellow when they have no food? Don't people complain about unsalted food? And this next statement is very curious to me because I like eggs. And Job says, does anyone want the tasteless white of an egg? <laughs> My appetite disappears when I look at it. I gag at the thought of eating it. Job just talks like he's completely miserable. He's suffering. He's suffering. So it's important for us to see Job's state of mind as we move through the book. For well over half of the book, Job and his three friends exchange accusations, arguments, and responses. Toward the end of the book, Elihu accuses Job of self-righteousness. Now, there is a quote, uh, a passage that we like to quote as Christians in chapter 19, verse 25. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. 
I am overwhelmed at the thought. I think this passage, again, is worth a lot of study. But without trying to explain it, I think it does give us a source of Job's hope. His hope was not in this world. His hope was not in wealth or a large family or in things that he could smell, hear, feel, or touch. But it was in his God. That's where his hope was. And he knew that his hope was alive and that he would uh, see God someday. In chapters 38 and 39, God responds to Job and challenges Job. And, and those passages are very interesting. And then Job answers briefly in chapter 40 and verse 3 and 5. And then there are two more chapters, chapters 40 and 41, where God addresses Job again. And the effect of that, in my opinion, just simply stated, is that through the address from God, Job is humbled. He is humbled. And so much so that when we get to chapter 42... When we get to chapter 42, and uh, let me get there on my Bible here. The scripture says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You ask, who is, that, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job, a man of incredible integrity, faced with immense suffering, remains true to God, but yet is so frustrated and angry and speaks out with lament and pleading with God for God to do something and to come and rescue him. God humbles him. Job is in ashes and he repents and he admits to God basically I know nothing and compared to you God I am nothing but God loves him do you see yourself in this passage at all do you see a recognition that we all need to have that God is God and we are not and that when we strive to explain and understand all the events of this world and everything that's happening to us and our neighbors and our friends and, our, and we just don't know. There's just so much we don't know and we'll never know. <clears throat> As a part of the conclusions from the book on how to read the book of Job by Longman and uh, Walton, they point out five things and I'll just read these very quickly. They say that here's five answers 
as far as suffering and the events that happen in our lives that come from their exhausted study of the book of Job. And by, what, by the way, both of these men have written full-length commentaries on the book of Job. Uh, one is in the NIV application commentary series and, and uh, is highly regarded. But here's their five observations. It says, there is often no explanation why things happen. <laughs> That's the first point they make. There is often no explanation as to why things happen. Number two, we cannot out-God God. And they go on to say, we must not permit ourselves the illusion that given the reins of the world, we could do it better. Thirdly, they say, trust is the only possible response. In other words, trust God. We need to trust God. Just pure and simple, we need to trust God. That doesn't mean like Job. You know, I mean, Job was active. He was pleading. He was praying. He was reaching out constantly frustrated, hurting, and angry. But trust God. Trust God. Fourthly, they say that God's wisdom prevails. That God's justice is to be affirmed but cannot be expected to be evident in our experiences. My way of looking at this is life is not fair. (laughs) That's probably not very scholarly. But life's not fair. Things are going to happen. And then fifthly, they make the statement that our benefits, our benefits from serving God, that seem to be from serving God, must be, be, must be devalued in our minds. Our relationship with God is foremost, not the material and any other blessings that we receive because of that relationship or as a, as a part of that relationship. In the book of James, chapter 5 and verse 11, there's a mention of Job. And it's mentioned, uh, Job is mentioned in this book because James is addressing the early church and the suffering that was occurring and that would have suffered, would suffer in the future. And then he points out to them that you have for yourself the example of the prophets. And then he also mentions by name Job. As an example of endurance. Now that's the, I've forgotten whether that was a translation from the New King James or the, uh, the NLT, but endurance. To endure. It might be patience. It might be long-suffering. It might be another word that would mean more to you in your heart. Keep on keeping on. No matter what happens, don't give up on your relationship with God. Many things are going to happen in our lives and have happened in your lives that were not your choice. You would have never chosen for those things to happen. But they happened anyway. And it's just very difficult for me to see that many of those occurrences are a result of a choice that we made and that we could have made a better choice. 
I'll give you a second personal example. I told you about 1967. Let me tell you a little bit about 1972. 1972, I was a senior in high school, was scheduled to graduate and did graduate in early June of that year. But in January, just about two weeks after my 18th birthday, something else happened that rocked my world and sent me back to looking at Job, and sent me back to looking at God's influence in my life and why things happen and why bad things happen in our lives. Because on a Sunday, a sunny Sunday afternoon in late January 1972, my sister died in a car accident. Just a few blocks down West 7th, right at the intersection where West 7th and Trotwood split. She was a senior in college, studying to be a math teacher. <laughs> she was married, had been married for um, almost two years, no children. And she and her husband, Danny, were just living between here and that intersection in an apartment on the south side of West 7. A good friend of hers had recently uh, had a baby and was still in the hospital. And so Flora decided on that afternoon to take a present. She had a gift that she had bought earlier in the week and to go to the hospital to visit her friend and the new baby. She was sitting at that intersection, right where she was supposed to be. Light was still red, right where she was supposed to be on the way to the hospital. And a tractor trailer came up Trotwood, made that slight turn to the right, and right in the middle of the intersection, the tractor and the trailer came unhitched. And the trailer came right over on the top of my sister's car. She didn't choose that to happen. How did that, how in the world does that happen? People said they'd never seen something like that happen before. My mother went into a pretty deep depression for several weeks. All of us were seriously impacted. But the message that kept coming back from our Christian community and our understanding of God was God loves us. God didn't cause this to happen. There were all sorts of explanations that people tried to come up with as to why something like that would happen. And they tried to put it on God. I just don't believe that. Bad things happen to good people. I believe what the authors of this book said are part of the message of the book of Job. There's just often no explanation why things happen. 
trust in God is the only right response. So if something has happened in your world, and what I mean is your life and your family and your relationships with others with that has rocked your world when it comes to how could God let this happen? I just want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. Stay true to your faith. Love God. Because the reward is not here anyway. The reward is in heaven. Where I'll see Gene and where I'll see Flora again. And my daddy and my mom. And so many other people that have died before me. Love God. Trust God. I encourage you to read the book of Job from start to finish. From start to finish. I'll keep studying it. I really think it would be a great study for a Wednesday night class here for a whole quarter. But somebody probably other than myself should teach it. Somebody that's better. If you would, uh, let's have a word of prayer before we have the song. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for the many blessings of life. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us and your care for us. Father, there are so many things that happen in our lives that we just really don't understand. And we see the example of Job, of being true to you, not being happy, but being true. Not understanding, but being true. We pray, Father, that we can take heart from that. We pray, Father, that it will encourage us, no matter what happens in our lives, to love you because we know that the reward is eternal in Jesus' name.